0: We're glad you're joining us here at Common Thread Online. This is a recording of our community gathering as we do each week to think together about the spiritual journey. At the end of the lesson, we open the floor for discussion, but we'd love to hear what you're thinking as well. On our website, our directions to download our app. Once you have it, join the group, What Are You Thinking? We'd love to connect with you there. I'm judging the people on the other side. <laughs> she didn't say it that way, but that's kind of what she said. You've also been hearing here's something that we could do. We could spend three hours on a Saturday morning on the 9th developing skills that will help us change our little sphere of the world. It does not take any skill at all to see how stupid and how hard hearted and how muddle headed the other side is. That is not a skill, that's the default setting in our brains. The work and the skill is to not default to that. It's very doable work. Skill development is something that we can do. If you missed uh, Cherie's talk last week, I hope you'll have a listen online. Uh, If you haven't registered for the night, well I really do hope you'll come. If we get good at this, we could change our families. If we get good at this, we could begin to change our small circle of the world. Now, I said in the email that today is going to be a book report Sunday. Two books and an article that follow up on a story that Cherie told last week, how right she was to be angry at her childhood religion and how wrong she was to default to her brain's most base setting. So it is a book report Sunday. I'm going to stitch together these three sources to make a point, and here's the point. Boy, I really hope you attend on the ninth. That's the point. (laughs) Um, Before I start, I want you to know that I know that today's lesson isn't for everybody. I want you to know that I know that I'll be talking to some of us and not all of us. Our community took a turn toward the blue after the 2016 election. Now, that's not everybody. Others, uh, some of us feel kind of nonpartisan. Others of us feel like we are leaning right, but we wish the right hadn't become what the right has become. So today's lesson, I know, is for some people, addresses a potential blind spot for some people, and if that's not you, you do not have to worry, I'm not talking to you. You can just listen while I talk to those other people, all right? <laughs> Today I'm going to tell you about this book, it's called The Tyranny of Merit. I'll put it up in a, again in a minute while I'm talking about it, if you want to get a picture of it. I'm also going to talk about this article I'll do the same thing I'll put that up when it's time what if we are the bad guys here an article by David Brooks but I'm going to start with a story from this book rich white men <clears throat> in the book the author uh, Garrett Neiman tells somebody else's story he tells the story of this woman Juliet Lithcott Hames now this woman is smart Kind of the point of the story is predicated on you understanding this woman is smart. Also, she is a mixed-race woman. As a youngster, she tests into the gifted program of her school, like 99th percentile tests in, but even so, she is denied entry. Uh, She presses. uh, The principal denies her again. Only when her mother comes and gets involved, a white woman, Uh, gets all enraged and goes and storms the school, only then does she get into the gifted program. And even so, the first day of, of her going into it, the principal walks her to her class and says, loud enough for everyone to hear, well, looks like anybody can be gifted if their parents complain enough. That was her story, a woman of color, and a gifted program. Then the author goes on to reflect on his own gifted program story as a white guy because he did not qualify for the gifted program when he was young. But his teacher, unbidden, approaches his mother with a workaround and says, hey, submit this portfolio, do this little bit of extra work, we'll finagle some paperwork, and bam, he's into the gifted program, which takes him into high school in the AP program, gets him into Stanford, and then he goes on to Harvard. So for years, he tells himself, You know what that teacher did? That teacher righted a wrong because I really am gifted. I just did poorly on one test. But later he knows more and he's reflecting on how, as a white guy, he gets a huge inside track. And then the book comes along with lots and lots of statistics, a study out of John Hopkins. It's not a big surprise that white teachers disproportionately believe in the potential of white students more than they do students of color. So that's the story. And here's why I told it to you today. I would be very surprised if this was not familiar territory for you. I would be very surprised given our blue word migration if that's not something you already know about. Because blue people know that stuff. So A lot of us know this kind of story. A lot of us know the history of policy decisions with sustained impact. We know about government-subsidized educational access. We know about government-subsidized wealth accumulation that applied to white people, did not apply to people of color, how it went on for decade after decade after decade, and it has had multi-generational impact, and we know how that impact is ongoing today because blue people know that stuff. Blue people know this is not one woman's story. This is not one man's story. It's kind of our nation's story because blue people know that. Also, if you're part of our community, you know that our spiritual tradition insists when you sit on advantage where much is given, much is required. We say all the time, we cannot be serious about being Christian, we cannot be serious about following our tradition if we are not about the work of justice, the work of making right what is wrong, of healing what is wounded. You've heard me do lessons many times on that Jewish phrase, tikken olam, to be healers of the world. It's why we're charter members of One Wake. It's why we work with 50 other congregations. It's why I want to get five of you to come and show up with me uh, on the 31st, I think it is. uh, We're working together on affordable housing, on public transportation, on homelessness. So I bet this is not unfamiliar territory for you. And it's quite possible that you would hear these two stories and you would feel like you're on the right side of history you would feel like there's probably a moral divide and you're probably on the right side of that moral divide. If the world is divided up into good guys and bad guys, we're good. And who doesn't like feeling good? And who doesn't like feeling a little bit morally superior? So maybe, if I use the term morally superior, you can kind of see where this is going. (laughs) You can kind of anticipate what's coming next because you might have started to suspect I was going to say, whoa, 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 hold on a minute. Not so fast, mister. (laughs) The point of today's lesson is not to attack blue people. The point of today is not to say that blue people are bad. The point of today is not to jump on the what-about-ism bandwagon that has become so popular, the false equivalency diatribe that the red team seems to be throwing up pretty regularly. It's not that. In fact, in a moment, along with the author of one of these sources, I will confirm that on par, blue people tend to be a good bunch of people, tend to be kind, tend to be concerned for the good of the many, tend to be conscientious, tend to be compassionate. This is not to denigrate the blue team, but it is to suggest we may want to show up. (laughs) It is to suggest that we might want to attend this event, not for the purpose of straightening out the Cretans on the red team. We might want to attend this to see our own blind spots a little more clearly. Because we cannot do much about this social ill that infects our society until we first see a bigger picture. And I am pretty confident that the teams do not see a bigger picture. The story that you and I pick up isn't the story. It's a part of the story. And the default picture that we hold on to only sees a part. And that's where this book comes in. Here's the premise of the Tyranny of Merit. The author says that at the root of our nation's political tribalism, there is a story, there is a belief that both sides have bought into hook, line, and sinker. Here's the concept. America is a meritocracy. In America, if you work hard, you can get ahead. Goodness sakes, how many people have said that? How many times have we heard that? That's like apple pie. It's about as America, uh, American as our founding documents. The book is full of quotes from the left, from the right. Everybody says, in America, you can rise to whatever height your ability will take you. you, can, uh, uh, you c- in America, you can rise to whatever heart, height your hard work will take you. The problem is, statistic after statistic after statistics, that's just not true. Study after study After study, that's just not true. Used to be. It is no longer, ours is no longer a nation of upward mobility. The class into which you are born is the strongest indicator of the class in which you will die. It is not IQ. It is not talent. It is not hard work. Now, there's a whole bunch of reasons why, and the book covers some of them. Many places do outline them. The bottom line, some people in our nation get advantaged, and some people in our nation get disadvantaged. And it's been going on for several decades, and what's been uh, particularly difficult the last few decades is policies have been put in place to make it easier to pass along advantage and to not pass along that advantage depending on where you started. You get to keep your children or you are kind of constrained to keep your children in the place that you are. So the reality on the ground is Americans can't any longer. Americans don't any longer rise to whatever level their hard work and their talent will take them. But reality on the ground is not kind of the point. The point is we believe it's true. We believe that merit is how we advance. We believe it so devoutly that we don't see when it is demonstrably not true. So, because we all believe the meritocracy gospel, when we succeed, we believe we succeeded on the basis of merit. It was me and my hard work. It was me and my aptitude. That's why I succeeded, which makes us just a little bit inclined toward pride, a little bit inclined toward looking down on those who did not work as hard as we did, who did not go to the good school that we went to. Conversely, when we don't succeed, we also believe merit, which means we're a little bit ashamed. We feel a little bit demoralized, and maybe we get a little grumpy and a little bit angry Because in this meritocracy story, not succeeding is a personal failure. Not succeeding is a moral failure. Now, all the while, there are policies in place that give some people the inside track and give other people rocks in their backpacks. That's the power of meaning-making stories. We tell this story, and the story blinds us. We don't see the whole picture. They make us selective seers, those, these meaning-making narratives that we carry around. Now, again, I would not be surprised in our community if you haven't, if you have heard that. Uh, I would not be surprised if when you hear it, you feel a little bit good about what you already know. Because you probably do know about the invisible systems that keep marginalized people marginalized you probably do know about those structures that have been put in place that make it easier for some people and harder for other people. So you might be thinking, ah, I know what Doug's talking about. Good on Doug. Good on Doug. That's something we really should be saying. Because, again, the blue team knows stuff. And the stuff that we know tells us we're the good people. We look out for those who are being left out. In many ways, that is really true. Now, I love moral superiority as much as the next guy. (laughs) It feels really, really good, but just a little bit more book report. This guy, David Brooks, starts his article by saying, how the hell is this clown still a viable candidate? I mean, Access Hollywood, many good people on both sides. All I need is 11,000 votes, 91 indictments. How in the hell is this guy still a viable candidate? Well, nothing if not meaning makers, we human beings, the blue team has latched on to a meaning making story. And the blue team story goes something like this Here's how it happened. The once ruling class, white people, well, really white male people, uh, experiencing breakneck demographic and cultural and political change, wants to slow things down, maybe even back things up a little bit. But blue people know if you are black or if you are brown, if you are gay or if you are lesbian or if you are trans or if you are a woman, you have been on the outside for such a long, long time. It is time. There is no more time to slow things down. And knowing that, maybe showing up at a protest, blue people feel enlightened. Blue people feel selfless. Blue people feel concerned for the downtrodden, feel a little bit noble. And the blue people often have a corollary story, and it's a story about the red people. They are a bunch of bigots and racists. They are democracy haters. They are willing to cheat the system in order to stack the votes, in order to stay in power because they can't do it on the legitimacy of their argument. As with all good disinformation, there's a little bit of truth in the story, but here's the thing about a little bit of truth, it will often blind us to the truth. So a little helpful context out of the article. During Vietnam, in our society, we began dividing up into classes. Uh, We are still doing it. In the 60s and in the 70s, children of the educated class, if they went to college, which My God, they sure did during that time, they didn't have to go to war. Our congressional leaders passed laws that formed an elite class that said, parents who wanted their kids to go to college and who could afford it, they didn't have to go and fight the Viet Cong. Uh, The children of the educated elite, the children of the large political donors, the children who could influence whether we stayed in the war or didn't stay in the war, those children did not have to go and fight communism. Or put another way, We are not in this war together. We elites will send off the underclass and they can do the fighting and they can do the dying. Also during the 70s, when it was time to enact Brown versus Board of Education, a notion fully supported by the blue team, we began to integrate schools with busing. But a funny thing happened. School district after school district after school district did not impose busing on upscale neighborhoods imposed it disproportionately on working-class neighborhoods or put another way we're not going to pay the price to uh, address racial injustice together we're going to let the underclass pay the price also blue people generally support free trade and global uplift support more generous immigration policies because they are more humane. And boy, we should support those kinds of things. We get cheaper stuff and we can buy cheaper services and we're doing good for the planet. Who doesn't like that? But here's how it's worked out. Those two policies create very little downward pressure on the salaries of the educated elite but on the working classes, there's a tremendous amount of downward pressure on the salaries. It worked out very nicely for the blue leaning counties, for the educated elite counties. They have for some time now been clustering into business enclaves. We live in one of them. There's one in Austin and Silicon Valley and in Boston, RDU. In 2020, the blue team won 500 of the 3,100 counties. But those 500 counties constitute 71% of the American economy. So free trade, immigration, cheaper stuff, no downward pressure on salaries doesn't cost much to be morally superior. Or put another way, we want to think globally and act locally. We just don't want to foot the bill for doing it. We'll let you foot the bill for doing that. We'll let the underclasses foot the bill for that wake county is a decidedly blue place a lot of social systems are working for us because we got a truckload of money being pumped into our county one example is our schools. i was running for school board i learned all about this yet yeah, we have problems but our school board is also the envy of the nation every county in the in the nation would want to be wake county schools and the reason is because Our county commissioners cover the gap that the General Assembly is siphoning off and they can do that with the truckload of money that we have because we are functioning as the educated elite. And because we are generating a truckload of money, we are paying a truckload of taxes, our schools are better off than any other counties in the nation. The social systems are not working for the remainder of those 3,100 counties. Schools are not working for their students. So the best kind of moral superiority is the kind that doesn't cost very much. So today, the educated upper class gets to live in one America, and everybody else gets to live in a different America. And when the educated uh, class sticks up for the marginalized people, as they should, again and again and again, it doesn't cost them a fucking thing hey, you all should just scoot over and make room for the marginalized. We're fine, thank you very much. Children of educated people get into good schools where they meet each other where they marry each other, where they have children after they've left school and get the really good-paying jobs, and they use those big salaries to make sure that their children also get into good schools, where they meet each other, where they marry each other, and they get good jobs. And then they take all that money to make sure that their children will keep this cycle going and going and going. And we've been sorting our society that way for several generations now. That's what the book Tyranny of Merit is all about. And as you might imagine, there are some people who are pissed off about it. So for some time now, our social norms have been dividing us up into a ruling elite and a lower class, and it's showing up with a whole bunch of angry, angry people living in a tinderbox right now. Increased competition to get to colleges for, because colleges how we measure merit and the cost of colleges have skyrocketed. So it's harder and harder for some young people to stay out of the job market for as long as it takes to get that four-year or that eight-year degree. Harder and harder for them to not be generating income for those eight years of their lives. And I know from experience, you do not have to be that smart to get an advanced degree. What you have to do to get an advanced degree is you got to keep showing up. That's all you've got to do. That's the hard part. You've got to organize your social construct so that you can keep showing up for classes because they kind of spoon-feed it to you all the way to a PhD. One group can afford to stay out of school that long. Another group cannot afford to stay out. One group can stop showing up or can keep showing up. One group cannot. So if the social system is stacked to pass the cost of social policy unevenly, And if your stack happens to be bearing the brunt of all of that cost, you might get a little bit pissed off, especially if those on the inside track keep telling you in a hundred different ways that they are morally superior to you, that they are caring and they are compassionate, that you are bigots and you are racist and you are throwback Neanderthals. You're deplorable. Study after study, the educated elite are the most insular class the least likely to have contact with people not like them. They hold the influence, they have the money, and they stake out the moral high ground. They just don't have to pay very much to do it. Now again, <laughs> the article affirms it, and I know it to be true because I'm talking to my people. I'm in this class of people. We are good people. We are not vicious. We're not wicked. We're not heartless, we're not evil, we're not bad. We are an earnest bunch. We are kind and we are public spirited. All that's true. But it might be also true that we're a little bit blind. Blind to what the other can see very, very clearly that we cannot. Not being in the soup as we are, it might be easier to stand outside and look and see the hypocrisy. Not an evil bunch, but maybe we could consider the possibility that we are a little bit blinded to what's going on for other people. And maybe we could consider that, yeah, we do need some braver angels. We do need to have some sight where we are potentially blind. Maybe we could focus a little bit less on straightening out the deplorable bigots and focus a little bit more on seeing the bigger picture and seeing our own hypocrisy. Now, live in a social arrangement that claims merit, but is not a meritocracy. Exact a high price of some people, but not others. Concentrate wealth in some counties, siphon it off of other counties. And then throw in a dose of moral superiority. Yeah, just call me deplorable one more time. I might be pissed off too. I might even stick with a depraved clown because he's the only one pointing out out how duplicitous the whole system has become. I was thinking I'd finish today and draw from the wisdom of our own spiritual tradition to talk about the perils of self-righteousness. And I ran out of words. I only get 2,300 words per lesson. (laughs) This is it. (laughs) So I'm going to probably talk about that later. But today, here's what I want you to hear. When we, and in Wake County, we very much are. And after our blue word shift as a community, we very much are. When we are in the soup, we can't see the soup. What Braver Angels offers us is a way to get out of the soup here's what our spiritual tradition is going to insist that we don't make our allegiances to the temporal reality but we look for a bigger reality and that bigger reality is bigger than nation it's bigger than state it's bigger than political party it's bu- bigger than the narratives that we have trumped up for each other and now feed each other there is a bigger reality that says we are every one of us carriers of the indwelling divine. And if we're gonna be spiritual people, we're gonna have to figure out how to make that work in very practical ways. We might need just a little bit of braver angels. So, indwelling divine, may we be righteous but not self righteous. Amen. Well, online folks, um, too bad for you, you're gonna miss what's about to happen. <laughs> <laughs> I am going to open the floor, and I bet folks are pissed. <laughs> However, what you can do is you can go on Zoom, and you can uh, participate in What Are You Thinking There. The link is on the YouTube notes. It's also on the front page of our website. And the password, if you've hung in here this long, is 1417. 1417. All right, so if we would, let's put our hand on our heart. Let's dismiss the folks as the, that are online remembering that we are, every one of us, carriers of the indwelling divine. Love and joy, peace, patience, kindness are all in us because we carry the divine. And if you would extend your other hand to our city, let's look for opportunities to repair and to heal the people that we live with, that we work with, that we go to school with, looking for opportunities to repair and heal our worlds. Amen. Thank you all. You are dismissed. All right, folks, what do you think? If these recordings help you move forward on your spiritual journey, we hope you'll take an ownership stake in the community and support the health and well-being of the community. Go to our website, commonthreadchurch.org. The donate button is right there on the top. Thank you.